So, uh, yeah, well, I'll keep this very brief. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Morris. Uh, Nick is the uh, program director for the Neurocritical Care Fellowship, um, and we'll be talking on brain death today, obviously. All right, thanks, Mike. Um, that's sort of like hanging around waiting for that CO2 to rise during an apnea test. Just it always takes longer than you want. <laughs> There's a lot of those. They're just getting ready to groan. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the uplifting topic of brain death. Um, you know, this makes the news from time to time. Uh, and there's some stories up here that uh, many of you probably are familiar with or at least uh, came through your Twitter feed at some point. Um, and I think uh, it just outlines the fact that this is something that everyone in critical care uh, needs to know. And you need to know it cold. You can't make mistakes. So just, just to get us started, um, quick little case here. So a patient qualifies for brain death testing as far as you can tell. They're unresponsive. They have no brain stem reflexes. Um, you do apnea testing, and the PACO2 rises from 40 to 73, um, while the medical team catches up on their Instagram accounts. Um, brain death is confirmed, true or false? Raise your hand if true. Nobody. False. Right. So some people just aren't sure, I guess. Um, it's, it's false. Why is it false? Just to be clear. Yeah, you have to actually watch and see if they breathe, right? It's not about the CO2, it's about whether they take a breath or not. You're just getting a stimulus to do that. Okay, so we learned something during summer education block. Success. Um, so we had a brain death lecture during summer education block and we had a brain death stimulation with the fellows. Um, and because of that, uh, I think this lecture will not be as focused on uh, kind of the nitty-gritty details of just how you go through these in a procedural way, um, but maybe get to some of the bigger questions about brain death. Um, a few uh, what I call sobering facts about brain death. Um, this is of the utmost importance. So the demand for organs right now is growing. The number of brain dead donors is decreasing. Um, and that's important because brain dead donors donate up to 1.5 more organs um, than those who die by cardiac death. Um, some important things for us to keep in mind. Um, as few as 20% of potential donors actually donate. 35% of potential donors are never referred to an OPO, in our case, living legacy. Uh, and up to 20% of brain death patients never undergo brain death testing. Um, reasons for these are myriad, including failure to consider the diagnosis, failure just to consider that donation could come from this, uh, perceived medical contraindications, unwillingness to allocate ICU resources, uh, leading to early withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies, rapid deterioration in cardiac death, and family refusal. We have direct control over some of those, and we can do better. Um, and then finally, consent rates uh, are not what they ultimately could be. Ours here are actually pretty good, but uh, nationwide they range from about 35 to 70 percent. Um, and factors that influence this are the timing of the request, the setting of the request, um, and family understanding, all of things which we have direct control over. So what, what does it mean to die? That's a big question. Uh, the Jahi McMath case, I think, for many of us, uh, really uh, grabbed our attention and refuses to let go. Uh, there's still uh, ongoing discussion in the literature about whether this case uh, highlights 
uh, inadequacies in our current understanding and determination of brain death. I think if you're not familiar with the case, this is a good place to start is in the New Yorker uh, review. There's a wonderful back and forth between uh, two prominent members of our community in neurocritical care um, uh, discussing the, what this means for brain death in general. Those are Alan Schumann, Ayanna Lewis in neurocritical care. Um, they get quite heated and personal. It's kind of a fun read. Um, but this just highlights that um, the public trust in us, I think, is eroding. And if you don't get this just right, um, you're going to contribute to the problem. And you're going to have enough opportunities in your career to mess up. And so let's get, let's get this right. Uh, another uh, similar example is, you've, you've probably seen this, the science article from Yale, uh, pig's brain, pig brains brought back to life. Um, what does this mean for our concept of death? Um, again, lots of public interest in this idea. And it, it extends beyond just uh, a trivial public interest. Uh, it extends to the court. So this is uh, right now online in chess. Uh, this is from Ayanna Lewis. This is looking back over the last 50 years, the number of legal cases uh, pertaining to brain death that come through the courts. You can see we're lucky enough in the Maryland area uh, to have zero cases. Um, but there are um, many cases that have gone through in our country, um, not surprisingly, the most being in New York. We're contributing to this erosion of public trust as physicians through our variability of practice. Uh, this was a recent survey done by uh, Sherry Braxick out of uh, Kansas, and they looked at 225 physicians and just asked them to report how they do brain death, right? There was no pressure on these people. They, I guess it could have been an open book test. Um, regardless, 25% um, reported doing a brain death exam that is current with, with that is consistent with the current practice guideline. That means 75% are practicing outside of the current guidelines. Um, and this last bit is out, just unbelievable. 10% um, of the physicians did not repeat, did not report completing apnea testing. And of clinicians who obtain confirmatory tests on an as-needed basis, 28% do so if a patient breathes during an apnea test. By definition, that patient is not brain dead, right? We all agree. Um, and should never undergo ancillary testing. The ancillary testing is, is useless in that situation. Um, so it's, it's no surprise that we find ourselves in the news quite often with uh, misunderstandings and controversy around brain death, if, if this is how we're practicing, um, about literally a life and death diagnosis. Uh, so how do physicians do if you actually don't ask them to report, but you just watch what they're doing? Um, so this came out of Yale. This is a simulation-based assessment of uh, physicians. They used a checklist um, to look at uh, concordance with guidelines in the clinical exam and apnea testing. Um, not a huge study, about 37 different physicians. Uh, the majority of them are attendings. Um, uh, but you can see the really dismal scores in completion of the checklist for both clinical exam and apnea testing. Um, I would point out that uh, it seems that neurocritical care attendings really know how to do an apnea test, uh, at least the two that did it at Yale, but um, even then, only 82% corrected the clinical exam. Okay, so what is brain death? Um, we can just do this as a show of hands. Um, who, who believes that brain death is the death of all brain cells? Nobody? The absence of neuroelectrical activity? Not a single hand. A legal fiction. Anybody? 
about it. Irreversible loss of consciousness. I see one hand maybe go up. Uh, irreversible loss of brainstem function. All right, I'm starting to see some hands go up. Irreversible cessation of all function of the entire brain. Nobody. Nobody. That's kind of shocking. Okay. Irreversible cessation of all function of the entire brain allowing for preserved neuroendocrine function. Very specific. Alright, so this is a brainstem group. Very interesting. Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a pathological diagnosis. Uh, so these are autopsy studies uh, done on the Mayo Clinic where they uh, look at the neuropathology after brain death. And what you see um, on the right is a brain with the different areas and the percentage of areas that show sort of severe ischemic uh, changes or neuronal death. And it is not 100% throughout, right? In fact, the numbers are quite, quite low, um, suggesting that this is really not a pathological diagnosis and not one that can be made at autopsy. So, so what is brain death? Well, the first group to really tackle this was led by uh, Henry Beach here at Harvard. Um, they, they went to the dean and said, we have a problem. Uh, we're keeping patients alive longer than we ever could. Some of them uh, are causing, I'm not sure if they used the term back then, but uh, moral distress burden on the caregivers because we're not sure if they'll ever get better. Simultaneously, uh, the first cardiac transplant was uh, just performed. and. It was concerning that some of these people who are donating organs, how do we know that they're not actually alive, we're not taking or organs from uh, alive patients? Um, they gathered a group of physicians, philosophers, ethicists together uh, to try to come up with a definition. If you notice, the title of the paper is A Definition of Irreversible Coma. They subtitled it to examine the definition of brain death. Um, but I think that's really telling, and that's where a lot of the controversy comes in this topic, is um, what, what we're really, I think, talking about is a definition of irreversible coma, and we have um, tried to generalize that to death, and there's still some tension among, uh, I think, neurologists, philosophers, ethicists, about whether those two things are should be equated or not. Here's a little thought experiment for you. Um, immediately following decapitation, where do human life and your personal identity reside? Who thinks the head portion? The torso. Human life in both and personal identity in only the head portion. A few. And then both in the head and the torso. All right, kind of a mixed crowd. So, a lot of the, the work in, in sort of conceptualizing what brain death uh, is has been done by uh, James Bernard, who's uh, a neurologist and uh, ethicist at, at Dartmouth. Um, he wrote one of the early papers, and at, at that time, um, back in 1981, the brain was really seen as this central integrator of, uh, of all organ function, and it was thought that there would be sort of inevitable uh, fragmentation of the organ system such that you'd have imminent cardiovascular collapse um, that was unavoidable within days of, of brain death. And so it, it wasn't really such a question that what to do with uh, patients like Jockey McMath who lived for months uh, following. 
diagnoses. Um, however, so Alan Schumann, I mentioned earlier, uh, published a study uh, in 1998 where, uh, for various reasons, patients who were diagnosed with brain death uh, were kept on uh, ventilators. And what he found, and, and you could even argue that he shouldn't have written this if you believe in uh, the concept of brain death, but how long they lasted from a cardiac standpoint. Um, many, many of these patients lasted months. Um, and bringing to point the fact that this idea of the brain is a central integrator of all organ function um, and that imminent cardiovascular collapse would occur shortly after brain death is probably false. Um, so uh, Bernat and others have uh, sort of updated their views of, of brain death and instead they see the brain somewhat differently. So they see the brain um, as sort of the primary organ involved in what they call an emergent system, which is consciousness, um, that is somehow different from any of its component parts. And to sort of highlight this, I have a quick video of uh, the idea of emergent, uh, emergent systems. Which, not surprisingly, is not working. Um, but the, the idea is that uh, consciousness uh, is really what defines humanity and that the brain plays a central role um, and that once he was consciousness, again, going back to the idea of the irreversible coma, um, that uh, human life as we know it no longer exists. Okay. Well, what is the actual legal definition? So in 1981, uh, the president had a commission to determine this. Uh, they came up with the Uniform Determination of Death Act, and they defined it as the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem. So this is a, a U.S. legal definition. It is whole brain, not brain stem. You brain stem people out there, you're British. Um, they also said a determination of death must be made within accepted medical standards, but they failed to define what those standards were. Um, and as a result, you have this horrible um, uh, mix of, of different standards that uh, vary not just from uh, hospital to hospital, but state to state. Um, and it's, it's really no, no surprise that our, our practice experience is so high. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about actually how to do brain death. And um, I think one of the most important parts of the brain death uh, determination is what you do before you, you start the process. Um, so these are just some, some personal recommendations mixed in with some recommendations from the AAN. And um, I think that the first thing you need to do is you need to talk to the family um, and probably your organ procurement agency as well. You need to express your concern that the patient um, actually has, has already died. And use those terms. Use the word died. Don't use the word brain death. Um, that somehow uh, minimizes and, and uh, makes it conditional that this death is not somehow full body death. This is only brain death. Um, you need to explain this concept to people because I've been having trouble explaining it to you, and this is something I think about all the time when I'm giving the talk. Um, people who've never thought about this are going to have a really hard time understanding this concept. And as we said before, one of the key drivers of acceptance to donation is family understanding. And so this is somewhere that we can directly help. Um, you need to describe how you will confirm your suspicion without getting lost in the details. So I always talk to families about testing. I invite them to come to testing with me and to watch. Um, 
you really have to be careful of avoiding jargon and getting too lost in neural pathways that even you might be a little bit uncertain about. Um, and then finally, you need to set up a meeting for afterwards. Usually that meeting afterwards, if you do all this right, goes pretty well. If you don't do this, it can go horribly wrong. Okay, so a case. A 59-year-old man was brought in by EMS. His wife describes being with him as he developed increasingly shallow breathing. He turned blue. Uh, she called EMS. His initial sat was 78%. His mouth was 60 He was intubated in route. The ED gave him dextrose, naloxone, and thiamine. He didn't improve. Um, his CBC was normalized with his CMP, and his tox screen was negative, except for a mildly elevated alcohol level. But on exam, he looks like he's brain dead. How do you proceed? How many people would go ahead and proceed with brain death testing? Uh, order a nuclear flow study. Non-con head CT. Couple hands. What are SSEPs? Uh, one hand. And wait 72 hours and re-examine. A few more. All right. Okay. So I would have ordered a head CT to start. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about why. But you order a head CT, which is unremarkable. And the exam remains consistent with brain death. Uh, EEG is applied and appears isoelectric. What do you do next? Proceed with apnea testing. Yeah, and here. Order a nuclear flow study. Order an MRI. Declare brain death. EEG is an ancillary test, by the way, for brain death. Isoelectric. Wait 72 hours and re-examine. This is a real case. Uh, this was a case uh, reported in intensive care medicine of baclofen overdose. Um, and it gets to one of the key points, which is before you can determine brain death, you have to have an etiology of brain death. You don't have to know exactly uh, the ultimate cause. So for instance, if someone dies, has brain death after cardiac arrest, I don't even know why they had a cardiac arrest. I have to understand they have hypoxic ischemic injury. Right. So in this patient, it, was not, it wasn't clear exactly what brain pathology there was that would uh, actually result in a, an exam that was consistent with brain death. And so under those circumstances, you really can't make the diagnosis. Um, excluding the presence of CNS depressant drugs is tough because a lot of these drugs uh, do not show up on our, our common talk screens. Um, and uh, lastly, um, you know, some of the obvious things we talked about, but just make sure that their, their labs look fairly normal and have severe endocrine disturbances. Before you go on, these are again, these are a little bit of nuts and bolts stuck in the middle of here. Um, you have nor normal temperature, so here we say above 36. Uh, normal systolic pressure, the AN recommends above 100. Um, you can put them on pressors to get them there before you go on with testing. Um, everything should be normal, right? Normal thermia, normal capnia. Um, you may say, well, I have a COPD or who probably lives with a CO2 of, of 63 and they have this. Uh, you know, metabolic alkalosis that compensates, and uh, the way our guidelines are written right now, um, that patient actually is, you're going to have a hard time uh, going through conventional apnea testing on that patient. Okay. So as you do this, you're going to uh, shoot for those goals. You can use vasopressors as needed. Uh, you're going to pre-oxygenate. You're going to use apneic oxygenation like we did in the uh, simulations. Um, there, you're going to know when to abort. Uh, which is if you're hypotensive, if you desat, 
um, or if you see respiratory movements, right? Because then you're done. Um, and if done is observed, you're going to get your PaCO2s and check them and make sure that you provided enough stimulus, which would be uh, PaCO2 greater than 60 or rise of greater than 20 from baseline, greater than or equal. So conventional apnea testing, um, I, I never had heard of carbon testing before I got to University of Maryland uh, as a standard for brain depth testing. Um, conventional apnea testing works. Uh, this is from the Mayo Clinic. Um, you can see uh, down the bottom right, so of 116 patients who underwent apnea testing, 114 um, completed their testing and you need to stop. These patients were well pre-oxygenated and had apneic oxygenation through uh, a cannula at four to six liters of oxygen. Um, so it, it works, it's my preferred method. I think there's the um, best history and best data around it. Um, I think carbogen probably works too and it's fine to use if, if that's your preference. In my experience, it just takes longer um, and I need more people to make it happen. Um, and I, I prefer not to use it for those reasons. Um, you could argue that maybe some of the patients um, who are uh, on this flow chart in whom uh, apnea testing was not performed, maybe uh, carbogen testing would have been a way to make the diagnosis for them. For instance, uh, perhaps the severe hypoxemia patient um, could have been maintained uh, on carbogen. So case two, a uh, 54-year-old man with ischemic cardiomyopathy is admitted to the MICU after prolonged cardiac arrest. His CT showed diffuse cerebral edema and loss of gray weight differentiation. Uh, he did not receive any sedation. His FAO2 is 100%. He's on a PEEP of 8, and his PAO2 is 50. His chest x-ray shows pulmonary edema. Uh, brainstem reflexes are absent. He does not appear to make any respiratory efforts. You suspect brain death. How do you proceed? Uh, who orders an ancillary test? Pretty hypoxic. Who attempts carbogen testing on high peep? Coming up there, maybe. Who of BB? Who optimizes pulmonary function and attempts apnea testing? Maybe one or two hands. And who discusses goals of care with family and advocates for withdrawal of care? Really? That is so upsetting. But can someone defend that position? Go ahead, please, please. You don't know anything about his goals of care right now. Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, I think this is, uh, there, there are very few ways in, in my career where I feel like I've been able to benefit more than one person at once. Um, bring that determination and organ procurement is the only way that we can potentially save up five to six lives, right? This is an incredible opportunity to make a difference as a physician in a time where I often feel like I don't make a whole lot of difference. Um, and I think uh, to withdraw care in these situations, uh, and I'm willing to fight this with anyone, is really, really troubling. Um, I think you have to treat this person as a donor until proven otherwise. Um, I personally, in this situation, I, I would just try to see if I can diarrhea them a little bit and safely do apnea testing and then be done with things. <laughs> it all depends on his goals, right? I mean, it all depends on his goals. Nothing, I mean, yeah, well, we don't know right now. Okay. So, um, for those who would order a nuclear flow study, um, this actual case, um, this is actually from the literature, um, this is a true case of a nuclear flow study um, based on that, that clinical uh, vignette. So based on that, the, the, they did a flow study, they didn't try to do conventional apnea testing. 
Um, this is the actual flow study, uh, family agreed to organ donation. Uh, several hours later during workup for organ donation, he was known to be breathing faster than the ventilator rate. And he, uh, after disconnection from the ventilator, he confirmed the presence of respirations. Um, so just to scare you a little bit, uh, I think the nuclear flow study is probably uh, the ancillary test of choice, but its specificity for brain death is not 100%. There's at least two case reports in the literature um, of uh, nuclear flow studies that were documented as having no flow um, in patients who were clearly not brain dead because they either regained respiratory rate or some cranial nerve falling um, determination. So the point being that all the ancillary tests are just that, they're ancillary. They're not the gold standard. Um, and as such, the best we can do is compare them to a gold standard. The gold standard has been, and uh, for the foreseeable future, will be the clinical exam and the apnea testing. All right. Case three, a 39-year-old with severe TBI meets all criteria for brain death determination. Testing, including apnea testing, <coughs> confirms brain death. The family asks if there are any other tests and give them more confidence in the diagnosis. They're having trouble accepting it. How do you respond? Yes, we can get that nuclear study. Or no, the gold standard is a clinical exam without being tested. Yeah. So some of you laugh, but this happens here, and this is not a, a case that is completely fictional. Um, and, and there's... Uh, if you remember from that, that survey that I showed you from Sherry Broxick, um, many patients, many physicians who order ancillary tests, they do so um, with the explanation that, um, number one, uh, several hospitals actually require them as part of their protocol, uh, and number or number two, they do so in order to help families relieve any anxiety about the clinical diagnosis. Uh, so, so why is that troublesome? So nuclear flow studies aren't perfectly sensitive either, especially early on. Um, so this is the, the best study I could find. Uh, and, and you're looking with spec studies about a sensitivity of 90% compared again to the gold standard. And so you are definitely going to run into some trouble with uh, family trust if, uh, and movement towards donation if you make a clinical diagnosis. Um, they ask for confirmation, confirmatory study, uh, which, right, these are not confirmatory studies, these are ancillary studies. Those, those words are different. Um, and you show that there is still some residual flow. So the, per the AAN, uh, ancillary tests can be used when uncertainty exists about the reliability of parts of the neurological examination or when the apnea testing cannot be performed. Um, they really recommend not using these outside of those areas um, and for just that reason. So what are the ancillary tests, just so everyone's familiar? Uh, the three that are currently uh, in the guidelines, I think there's new guidelines probably coming out uh, shortly, uh, but EEG is still in the old guidelines. I think that it may make its way out. Um, there have been several cases of isoelectric EEGs that have regained some brain function, um, but EEG is still in there. Uh, problems with it, it only measures surface activity, it's subject to artifact, and it's highly affected by temperature and sedation. Um, what you see here on the top, that's a EEG at a normal sensitivity and it looks completely flat. Um, so many of our cardiac arrest patients are hooked up to EEG as soon as they come in. EEG often looks flat. Um, to make the brain depth determination, you actually have to increase the sensitivity uh, from two microvolts, uh, from seven microvolts to two. Um, and so that's what we've done here and you can see that there actually is some underlying brain activity there. 
conventional angiography is another ancillary test. Um, some of the issues with conventional angiography, it requires transport, an angiographer that's willing to do the procedure. It's invasive, uh, it, can, to, it can lead to contrast, nephrotoxicity, perhaps, if you believe in that. Uh, you have to inject all four vessels, and there's some variability in the injection and push technique. So when times a very slow flow or sluggish flow, um, it really needs a more aggressive push to make sure that you're not getting uh, just stagnation and uh, the timing of the uh, image acquisition is important. And then finally, nuclear flow studies. So uh, probably the best, but still, as we mentioned, limited. Uh, again, posterior fossa can be a bit limited. Uh, the uptake can be affected by hypothermia and by, by barbiturates. And uh, there is imperfect sensitivity, as we mentioned. All right. So if you're trying to make the brain a brain death diagnosis, sort of how do you get from here to there? When I type in brain death to Google Maps, it led me to Germany, so that's not there. Um, <laughs> I have no idea why. I do. There's a tattoo parlor called Brain Death Tattoo Parlor. Um, anyway, we have uh, we have a checklist to do this, right? Get that checklist, print it out, and use it at the bedside as you're doing it. It's there for a reason, so that you don't make a mistake. Um, we also have these policies that are really nice, they're well written, they're easy to follow, and they will tell you how to do this. Um, they're at a policy staff. Um, here you'll see that there's one after the after test protocol, there's also a carbogen method. We also have separate for ECMO, um, and so it's there to help you. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. People call us on occasion asking us these questions like, oh, how could I possibly do this? And um, the answer is it's here. We actually, people have thought about this, they've written it down, and you can refer to them. Okay. Case four. 25-year-old man was uh, presented with acute onset headache and loss of consciousness. In the ED, he had uh, absent brainstem reflexes and no spontaneous breathing. A CT showed a large rate cerebellar hemorrhage. No surgical intervention was offered. VP exam six hours later was stable. Apnea testing was performed. No breaths were taken. His CO2 got up to 111. They ordered a CTA when he arrived, which was done after the determination, and it shows this, that there is flow in the bilateral M1 segments of the MCAs. What do you tell the family? Um, that the exam and apnea testing have confirmed that the patient has died. Anybody? The gold standard. Yeah. Uh, the patient has not died since there's evidence of cerebral blood flow in CTA. CTA is not an approved ancillary test, so you'll order a DSA. And we'll repeat ancillary testing in 24 hours. All right, so smattering of different. So what does this get to? This is, are you a whole brain or a brainstem person, right? This patient has brainstem death, uh, but they still have cerebral blood flow uh, supertentorial. Um, so, two definitions of brain dead, and you should be aware of them, right? So you've got the American definition, where the entire brain is dead. Um, and then you have the British definition, uh, which they allow for just brainstem death. So, it turns out this is a controversial topic. Uh, this is another survey of uh, neurologists that uh, was in neurology clinical practice last year. Uh, you'll see the, the purple are people who um, say that brainstem death is sufficient for brain death. The green is those who argue that whole brain death is necessary, and you'll see there's not a lot of agreement. The UDDA, the legal document that, that defines brain death, 
does specifically say whole brain, including brainstem. So ultimately, maybe these two things aren't that different. So maybe if you put them together, you just get Owen Wilson. Um, so this was a, a case series uh, that came out of Henry Ford, uh, Henry Ford, and they what they did is they followed three patients, including the imaging that I just showed you with that clinical vignette. Um, they waited a few days and then repeated conventional angio and saw that eventually the cerebral blood flow stopped. Uh, so why does this happen? Uh, you, there's a variety of um, different ways you could explain it. Perhaps there's, there's worsening hydrocephalus, um, worsening uh, ICP, further herniation, further infarction, etc. Okay. Case five. Uh, basically the same case. Um, and this patient instead Neurosurgery says, well, we're going to place an EVD, right, because we want to see if he gets any, regains any function with an EVD. Maybe it's just a hydrocephalus that makes him look bad. So they place an EVD. Um, you go through everything else the same way. Uh, you complete apnea testing, and then you look up uh, at the monitor and you think, oh, shoot. Uh, that EVD has a waveform, right? And I think I uh, also talked to the fellows during summer education black on ICP, ICP monitors, and how the ICP uh, reflects probably blood flow. So what do you tell the family? Patients died. Patient will not progress to brain death because the EVD is in place. So we should just place the BP shunt. Obtain an ancillary test. And let's remove the EVD due to futility and repeat brain death determination. I'm just going to call on people now. Matt, what would you do? Uh, <laughs> the patient died. Uh, I mean, clinical exam. You have an ICP waiting form, but the ICP waiting form is some pressure getting through. Dr. Bajaj is shifting his seat over there. I, I know. He's looking over his glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it. Near to this patient, did I? No. <laughs> we have,
No, I, I totally agree with you. And um, this this happened, so that's why I bring it up. Um, but I, ideally, you've, you've thought about these issues before you've gone through with the formal testing, right? Because it's always harder uh, to do after you've done that. So, yeah, I think the, the point here being that um, usually this is fairly straightforward. Um, sometimes it's quite tough, and there, there aren't really a lot of clear answers. And in those cases, um, I think that's when you turn to your colleagues uh, and you ask for help uh, and come to consensus. Okay. <laughs> All right. Case six. We're into the end here, so just bear with me. A uh, 34-year-old woman presents after cardiac arrest with PA. She was found down at home. Uh, was less than normal 30 minutes prior. She did not receive bystander CPR. CT was performed along with a PE protocol CTA and thrombolytics were administered um, based on that style on uh, She was started on TTM with a target temp of 36. We made it to the MICU. The radiology resident called you reports severe diffuse cerebral edema with evidence of herniation and concern for subarachnoid hemorrhage. On exam, we find a patient who is unresponsive with no brainstem reflexes and no spontaneous breaths. What's your next best step? Uh, quickly, hypertonic saline bolus. Edema. See a couple hands go up. Uh, reduce the target temperature to 33 for the edema. Nobody. Consult neurosurgery. Decompressive craniectomy. All right, I've shown up to this case with neurosurgery. Um, pinto bolus. Gotta do something for that edema and ICP. No. Continue the TTM protocol. Perform apnea testing. Right. Anyone want to share with the group what they do? Okay, well, I'll tell you what I did when I showed up to this case in the MICU and neurosurgery was there and asking me why they were there, um, and the patient was getting uh, hypertonic saline bolus, um, and I was asked if we should give them penobar. Um, I think you want to think a little bit about the, the uh, some of you are laughing, but I think this is uh, something that comes up from time to time. Um, you want to think a little bit about why this patient has severe cerebral edema, right? Um, this is from basically normal death, and there's uh, dysfunction of the sodium potassium ATPases and normal swelling, um, and this is going to be an irreversible injury. Um, and so ultimately, hyperosmolar therapy is not going to have a lot of benefit in a case like this. You can see that it's just devastating injury on the CT. And is that subarachnoid hemorrhage? No. So what is that? Yeah, this is pseudo-subarachnoid hemorrhage. So pseudo-subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, occurs when there's sort of extreme ICP issues. Uh, there's different theories about why this happens, but probably what's happening is there's loss of uh, the hypoattenuated CSF space. Uh, this parenchyma itself is somewhat hypodense, uh, and then there's, uh, due to uh, compression, there's engorgement of cortical vasculature such that there's collecting of uh, cortical blood that's somewhat hyperdense, um, and it, it looks like subarachnoid hemorrhage. And uh, I can tell you uh, it's not uncommon uh, for our, our radiology colleagues who have not known the clinical context um, to call pseudo-subarachnoid hemorrhage subarachnoid hemorrhage. And, and sometimes it can be hard to tell. Usually the Hounsfield units are a good clue. Um, so in pseudo-subarachnoid hemorrhage, usually the Hounsfield units are somewhere between 30 and 40, whereas the acute blood is uh, more often upwards of 45 to 60. 
Well, before we do that there, the intern received the call, and so they searched up to date for what to do for severe cerebral edema, and they gave Penobarb. And then they gave a few doses, because uh, you didn't get there till the morning. So now the patient's rewarmed and been given Penobarb, and the exam still looks like they're brain dead, and there's no spontaneous breaths. What do you do next? Who will proceed with apnea testing? Nobody. Who obtains a DSA or nuclear test? Who waits a really long time? Good, good. Yeah. You have to wait a really long time. If you think back to the nuclear flow studies, uh, barbiturates can actually uh, decrease flow and it, it can give you a false reading on the test. So you wait eight days and then a pentaclar level is sent an assay, it's below assay. A family meeting is held. Do you ask permission before you diagnose brain death? <laughs> First clear answer we've gotten all day. <laughs> Anyone ask permission? No. Yeah. I I don't I tell them I'm going to do it. I don't ask permission. I, I would ask do you ask permission when you declare cardiovascular death, circulatory death? No. This is just the AAN's official position. It believes that members have both the moral authority and the professional responsibility to perform brain death evaluation. Um, and you have no obligation to obtain informed consent because this is analogous um, to that of circulatory death. Um, okay. Nonetheless, the family refuses to have you proceed with brain death testing, citing religious objections to, uh, to the diagnosis. They identify themselves as Jewish. What do you do next? Have this situation occur. Proceed with brain death determination, declare data positive, and insist on removing the ventilator. Aggressive stance. Proceed with brain death determination, declare data positive, and wait for family permission to remove the ventilator. Good luck with that. Um, proceed with brain death determination, uh, declare data positive, and then transfer to New Jersey. Anybody? <laughs> Um, do not proceed with brain death determination. Anyone stop? Family says no, no. Call ethics consult, Dr. Silverman, see you at Schwartz rounds. No. Discuss case with their rabbi. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would uh, do, or at least have them do. Um, so again, this is a, another recent study from Ariana Lewis, who's doing a ton of work in this area. Um, and, and she actually surveyed uh, a whole lot of rabbis about brain death. And there is huge variation in the rabbi's uh, view of whether brain death uh, represents actual death. Um, it's the second one over here. I believe that a person who is brain dead is dead. You can see all rabbis are in black. It's about uh, you know 78% or so orthodox rabbis, uh, somewhat lower. The conservative reconstructionists are the highest, and the reform rabbi is a little bit lower. Um, what I found is, uh, often I'm surprised, I have a family ask them, well, why don't you talk to your, um, whoever it is in, in your faith who uh, helps make these uh, judgments for you, and, and sometimes they come around and they say, oh, we didn't realize um, that they, they don't seem to think that this is inconsistent with our beliefs at all, and they, they let us go ahead. Um, especially in the Christian faith, it's not uncommon where I've had even Catholic families tell me this, and uh, it's, why don't you go talk to your priest about it? And the, the Catholic Church is pretty clear on, on their standings in this. So, um, 
I think it helps to try to uh, sort of ally with religious leaders and see if you can actually find common ground. If you can't, then that's a different situation. These are the AAM's official views and whether the time I'm going to skip those. Um, just a few last pitfalls, the diagnosis of brain death. This is a nice paper to refer to. Uh, it's by Dave Greer. Uh, these are a bunch of clinical problems that come up fairly regularly and these are potential solutions. Um, you can see ancillary testing can be a good solution for several of the problems, um, but it, that's how it should be seen as a solution to a pitfall and, and not as a way to make the determination itself. All right. So I got any questions, thoughts? That's really, really challenging. Um, there, there's some movements that, are, that we, we see all the time, and they're very clearly consistent with brain death. So, um, you know, an example would be an, an upgoing toe, right? If someone feels it strokes the bottom of their foot, the toe goes up as in a Vinsky reflex. Um, that's still consistent with brain death. We understand that spinal mediated reflex. Okay, big deal. Um, there are others that can be much more complex. So, uh, the most famous of these is the Lazarus sign, um, which you can Google and YouTube it. Um, this is uh, abdominal contraction, basically, where the, the patient literally sits up in bed. Um, it can be horrifying to, to see, especially, especially if you're unexpected, it's unexpected, which it almost always is. Um, so, so how do you how do you figure out what's going on? Well, one, spinal reflexes, non-purposeful movements, they should be stereotyped, right? So you should be able to recreate this again and again in some type of stereotyped fashion with a similar stimulus. Um, some of these movements are spontaneous. Um, there are a couple of nice papers on this. Uh, I didn't include them here, but I can email them out uh, to see what's been what's been documented and recorded, and if it describes perfectly what you're seeing, uh, maybe you'll feel better about it. Um, I think, again, this is a time where you want to turn to your colleagues and people who are more experienced and get their views on this, and they can help you along. Um, and then lastly, if you're really unsure, um, that's right here, uh, movements indeterminate of spinal or cerebral. That's where you may want to get an ancillary test to help you along. did a full exam, did a, uh, he didn't do apnea testing, that had already been done, but he, he was in agreement that she was brain dead, and then he spent um, quite a bit of time at her bedside with her mom um, watching, and then her mom started sending all these videos, and he, did, he thinks that uh, he saw 
at times purposeful movements. And so what we, we call what he calls this is that um, she had flow studies, by the way, and others that suggest that she had no no blood flow. He calls this uh, global ischemic penumbra. So the entire brain is a penumbra of tissue that's at, at risk for infarction, and there's variation throughout the day, which leads to minimally conscious or uh, persistent vegetative states. Um, but that's one neurologist who um, has made that determination. Um, in general, there's been no accept, widely accepted case. No, there's certainly not been a case um, that's been determined uh, according to guidelines and has made um, any recovery um, that really beyond, you know, some beyond that one case, right? Which was just some hand movements of, of squeezing a hand and moving things off the body and things like that. And if you watch someone for six months, I think you're going to see a lot of movements potentially. Um, she had known movements to stimulus, the kinds that we're talking about, and usually these are almost always in a setting of some stimulus, and many other neurologists watched these and didn't come to the same conclusion as Dr. Schumann. And so, um, I, my personal belief is probably not. Uh, the AN strongly believes no. Uh, one, at least one person believes yes. Uh, 